The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's show is part two of our three-part interview with Dr. Evan Alexander, and Evan is joined today by his research partner and co-author, Karen Newell. And since I introduced Evan extensively in last week's show, let me dedicate today's introduction to Karen. Karen Newell is an author, personal development expert, and co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Her personal growth writings, workshops, guided meditations, and teachings enable individuals to achieve life transformations towards greater self-fulfillment and contentment, qualify relationships and career choices um, aligned with one's soul calling. Karen is an innovator in the emerging field of brainwave uh, um, entrainment audio meditation. Using sacred acoustics recordings, she teaches how to enter and engage one's own consciousness to to connect to um, inner guidance, achieve inspiration, improve wellness, and develop intuition. Karen is co-author with Dr. Uh, Alexander of Living in a Mindful Universe and um, at international workshops presented with Dr. Alexander, Karen demonstrates key practices of consciousness exploration, heart awareness, intention, maintaining neutrality, emotional management, and cultivating internal knowing. And uh, Karen's lifelong interest in ancient cultures and sacred sites catalyzed her drive to understand the purpose of our existence. She became fascinated with esoteric spiritual texts and sought alternate explanations for humanity's collective history. So, Evan and Karen, um, welcome back to NDE Radio. Well, Lee, thanks so much for having us on. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, well, it's good to have the two of you. Evan and Karen, what's a good working definition of consciousness? And what are the spiritual spiritual ramifications of the term? I would open up by simply saying consciousness is our awareness of existence. You know, keep it really simple. It's what uh, human beings uh, have come to recognize as their uh, as their awareness in the moment. Uh, being in, you know, we kind of default to thinking of ourselves as being in a body. And that body is something that is aware of its existence in the world, uh, interacts with that world, and can express uh, a free will in kind of manipulating that, that world. Uh, so consciousness is uh, that entire field of information that comes into our awareness as a sentient being. Um, and I think that uh, a, a fuller definition also includes concepts like the unconscious. There are certain kind of aspects of consciousness that at a given moment in time might not be apparent to conscious awareness and yet plays into uh, how that uh, consciousness evolves over time. Uh, And I would also point out uh, that certainly uh, the position we put forward in living in a mindful universe uh, is that that consciousness that we all tend to think of as separate existing, you know, in our own brain and and mind and our own bodies in many ways, you can show scientifically overlaps and intersects with other minds and with other uh, aspects of the information field. Uh, so that, for example, non-local consciousness is a very key uh, concept. Telepathy, remote viewing, uh, things like that 
uh, that scientifically allow us uh, to expand just individual consciousness to a higher level. And I would just add, you know, you asked about how is this consciousness related to spirituality? And so it's incredibly related because I like to think of the spiritual world is that which we cannot see and cannot measure. And so the physical world that we can see very readily, that's what science is used to studying. But consciousness or the spirit is what we can't see. And so that's what Eben often says, you know, that's the only thing any one of us truly knows exists is our own inner consciousness. So that's our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, our, you know, our hurts. And this is, can be very much differentiated from that observer. Um, so, so when I say our thoughts, our emotions, those are kind of our reactive kind of running stream of consciousness. But what's separate from that is that observer that's behind all of that. And that's the consciousness that we're mostly interested, getting beyond kind of the here and now of our thinking and the physical body. And that consciousness, that primordial consciousness that according to the philosophical belief that, that we both have is that consciousness is fundamental and is playing an incredibly important role in creating our unfolding reality. So each of us is connected to that consciousness, making each of us responsible collectively for our reality around us. And just figuring out how all that works is what fascinates both of us. Mm -hmm. You, um, in your book, you quote Sir James Jeans as uh, saying the universe begins to look more like a great thought than a great machine. And uh, do you see consciousness as pervading everything in the physical world? I think the, the way to look at it is that everything exists within consciousness. Um, you know, in these discussions, you'll often find uh, one of the models that's uh, coming to the fore you know, for, uh, I would say, recovering uh, materialist uh, neuroscientists who, who used to believe that the physical brain creates uh, consciousness. And the model coming to the fore for some of those people is called panpsychism. And it's the notion that all the subatomic particles uh, throughout the universe have certain kind of proto-conscious elements attached to them. And therefore, if you assemble uh, these collections of material particles, that somehow over time you start assembling uh, consciousness itself to be associated with that. Uh, and I think panpsychism is wrong. It's, uh, it's kind of missing the much bigger feature of objective idealism, which is that really the thing that exists in this universe is consciousness, is that mental layer. Uh, it's a layer of information assimilation and integration. Uh, and that's where I think sentient beings uh, are able to access that mental layer of the universe. Um, and that's really a better way to look at it. So um, hmm. that really puts consciousness as fundamental and primary and the entire physical universe as derivative from that uh, uh, consciousness. And I, I think that's... Uh, uh, from my point of view, uh, and this is something, of course, that we argue in living in a mindful universe is all the uh, many reasons why you really have to go all the way to idealism to see the importance of consciousness. Um, but a, a crucial part there is to get rid of the illusion. You know, we're under this illusion that all the physical world is out there as a physical world and that somehow it's independent of the observer. That's one of the deepest and most profound uh, kind of messages that comes to us from quantum physics. 
and especially from the deep metaphysical underpinnings of quantum physics, which are still being argued about in, in scientific circles. Um, but recognizing uh, the true power of that objective idealism, I think, is, is uh, uh, very beneficial for humanity's growth at this stage in the game, hmm. especially for manifesting our higher will. I interviewed a man once who, in an out-of-body experience, walked through a wooden desk and said he felt the consciousness, even though this was an old desk, of the, of the trees that had gone into making the desk <laughs> uh, still there. And so uh, I've always had that image in my mind of, 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 of a consciousness. Now, I don't know that you'd have to be a living thing. You know, a stone is probably not a living thing, but it, it too can have a consciousness of sorts. Well, I, I think, yeah, and that's where it gets very interesting. And that's where I think that the model of idealism and realizing the kind of primacy of consciousness uh, in creating all that, because I wouldn't deny at all that that would allow someone to have that kind of a feeling for kind of the spirit in the table. Uh, but it's not that the spirit actually lives in the table as much as the table lives in spirit. And that's what we, you know, that old, all the discussions about the ghost in the machine. Um, I remember there was a book by that title in the late 1960s, mm. uh, Ghost in the Machine, that kind of addressed some of these, these issues. And, and what the modern neuroscience of consciousness is actually showing is uh, just as Sir James Jean said, the thing that really exists is the ghost. Uh, the machine itself is very much an illusion. The physical realm is the illusion, the maya, not as it appears. Uh, and really from uh, deep journeys into the world of NDEs and the realms of primordial mind and consciousness is what reveals to us this primacy of mind. Mm. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you, you cite maya as or describe Maya as meaning things not as they appear to be, rather than a total illusion, the way uh, many Matrix-like, you know, Matrix-themed movies would say, you know, all of this is is just illusory. But it's uh, there's something essentially beneath the illusion that is real. Well, that that part is very very uh, uh, crucial to get. I, I think another way of framing it. Uh, to try and make the point is something that in, in our book, Living in Mindful Universe, Karen and I bring up, the supreme illusion. Uh, and, and what that, that is, is stating is that when you really get down to uh, fundamentals and basics about all this, as, you know, as we sit here uh, in front of our computers uh, talking and, and listening and all that, remember that what you're actually experiencing in your, in your mental realm is a model. And it's a model of that surrounding world uh, that we think has some facile, um, you know, representation of that world. That's we spend our whole life kind of adapting our nervous system uh, to develop this model to where it has, um, you know, kind of predictable relationships with the world around us. But the mistake we're making, and this is comes directly from quantum physics, is that. Um, we, we assume that all that is out there, but never forget the supreme illusion, which is that what you're truly experiencing is a model being put together within your mind. Uh, it's nothing more than that. 
And that's where quantum physics, and especially what it says about the nature of the observer and the relationship of the observer to the observed, and how you can never separate them, because they're all really one within the universe, even though our linguistic self and our rational self tries to separate uh, observer from observed and subjectivity versus objectivity in a very deep way. We've never known anything other than subjectivity of experience. And you can argue that there is no objective world out there that is independent of that observing mind. What is mind? Is my mind my own or is it a, a shared mind with others and with something supreme? Well, that's where it gets very fascinating. And in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into great detail to explore the many kind of episodes of non-local consciousness. Uh, you know, things like telepathy, precognition, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, shared death experiences. And of course, I think this audience probably understands shared death, but important to point out for those who don't, they happen, they're just like NDEs, but and in people who are generally physiologically healthy and normal, say at the bedside of a dying loved one, or you could be a thousand miles away and your mother is leaving the physical world and her soul might pass through and invite the bystander soul along uh, for a journey. Uh, that's another example of, you know, the shared death experience is a very profound indicator of, of mind. Uh, and you, you start to realize, and also with the literature on past life memories and children suggested for reincarnation, all the knowledge of life reviews and how that shows boundaries of self or false. These are all indicators that we're really sharing one mind. And I just always have to say when Eben and others get very focused on this one mind, I think that keeps us really up in the intellect, kind of the the thinking part of how all this works. And yet, I, I feel it's very important to realize the feeling part of how all this works. And so when Eben says, you know, it's one mind, I like to say it's one heart because what near-death experiencers discover and experience when they're having those amazing transformational events is that there's this amazing force of love. And they talk about, they all come back talking about this love and how comforted they felt and how it pervades everything and everything's made of love. So when we talk about the one mind, it kind of removes us from that, that binding force of love, as we call it. So when we think of one heart, then we can kind of see how we're all connected through our feelings. And the, the electromagnetic field of the heart, according to heart math research, actually expands and contracts around the body and influences the people around us. So our fields are constantly interacting as we go about our days. And so that's a very useful model um, for understanding how we're really all connected. Mm -hmm. what, what is, um, what's the relationship of love to consciousness? Are they the same thing? I would say ultimately it's all about love. And given that consciousness is the only thing any one of us truly knows and uh, in many ways uh, the thing that generates the entire physical universe, that love and consciousness at their deepest core are one and the same. And, and it's one of the lessons that is so crucial to bring back to this world. I'd say most of our kind of societal beliefs have been heavily influenced over the last few centuries by uh, scientific materialism, which at its very base, reductive materialism is the notion that the world is made up of all these separate objects 
and that the name of the game is to understand how those objects interact and interrelate. Um, and uh, in many ways, that's a very false uh, vision as most near-death experiencers come back from a really deep experience connecting with that God force of pure love. Uh, they recognize that we're really one with the universe and one with each other and connected in a very deep way. So from my point of view, you cannot really uh, dissociate a discussion of the uh, kind of full phenomenon of consciousness from the notion of the binding force of love. I think most NDEers would agree uh, it's all bound together. In your book, you cite a quote from Einstein, uh, I guess, uh, at the death of a friend. They were consoling him, and he said, past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. How does time relate to consciousness? Well, I think of, if you get into the physics of time and study that today, what you'll find is that the modern scientific community is more absolutely shocked and befuddled by time and what it may truly represent uh, than most people would realize. And, and I believe that that is heavily due to our kind of misunderstanding or lack of understanding about consciousness. I think to have any kind of realistic notion of time flow and what is actually going on in this universe when we refer to time, and of course there's not one universal river of time, even in the physical universe. Um, time flow depends on uh, relative speed and reference frame and gravitational fields and things like that. Uh, but I think at a deeper level, uh, we need to understand much more about our conscious perception of the universe uh, to truly start unraveling the profound mystery of time. I often, uh, you know, as we uh, mentioned in our first segment here, uh, there's something I call deep time, uh, which is a completely different uh, kind of more primordial ordering of causality of events that allows for things like reincarnation uh, and all that to occur honoring that the fundamental thing is relationships so that of course a loved one would never have reincarnated before they would be available to us when we leave the physical world because the relationships and the binding force of love are the fundamental reality and that w when we look at earth time we're looking at a fairly superficial construct that is only there to support uh, the reality of the journey in this level but that in in fact, I think deep time is a crucial concept uh, that we can have different orderings of time with different metaphysical layers of the universe to more fully understand all the events that we see. So time is really at the, the kind of uh, crux of understanding this uh, all about consciousness because consciousness is what in many ways generates what we perceive as earth time. And you realize how all that gets thrown out the window when people go through a life review. In the life review, all those events are lined up very beautifully and completely, uh, and they're relived not as some sepia-tinted memory, but very sharp, crisp, vibrant, and alive re reliving of those events and appreciating the emotional impact of our thoughts and actions on those around us. That's what the life review is all about, and that is simply showing us how at these higher levels of the spiritual um, notions of Time and causality uh, can come into a much richer kind of presentation to us. Mm. I'm so glad you mentioned deep time because that was one of the questions that I, I had hanging over me from the from our first uh, discussion and in, in part one of our interviews. Um, I often get asked this question: if 
how can someone still be available to me if there's reincarnation? In other words, if my if my father has died, is he just hanging around as a spirit waiting uh, for me to die so that he can move on and be reincarnated? And it's always seemed to me that it, both things could be possible at the same time. But I don't I don't have a clear understanding of how that might work. Well, my understanding of how this might work, I, I, and I think you're correct that it could be both could be correct. And I feel as though when we when we come into these physical bodies, part of our soul, the personality that is formed for this particular lifetime enters into the body. And when that body is finished, that personality, that part of the soul goes back to the other side. So that formation is always going to be there and available as long as someone has some kind of resonance with it. And so anyone who still has a loving relative here on earth is going to remain in that form and available to them. But it doesn't mean that another aspect of their soul, another piece of that soul that has potentially a slightly different personality based on the goals for that lifetime, that part of the soul could re-enter into a body while that original soul piece of that soul is still available. And I think it's especially important, again, to remember that none of this is slave to earth time. Earth time is what allows the drama to unfold in this physical realm. But, um, you know, all the uh, actual perception and memory and the information field that supplies every bit of this, which I would call the quantum hologram or the Akashic record, um, that that is something that's completely outside of of the material world. That is in that realm of consciousness, and that's how all of this uh, can be assembled in kind of a, with a higher notion of causality that is not limited by Earth time and its apparent flow. Wow. Well, now that I'm back to uh, the questions that came to mind when we were talking about uh, your NDE. Um, when your brain was wiped, and I, I've always assumed that that's what has to happen before someone will have a, an NDE or out-of-body experience, that something has to interfere with the function of the brain because normally the brain just doesn't allow for that. But when your brain was wiped and you had no memories, where did, were those memories stored and how did you get them back into your brain? Well, again, that brings up that whole uh, concept of what, what I call the quantum hologram. Uh, and I think some people in certain traditions have called the Akashic Record. But it's basically an information field of all possibilities, all possible interactions, all, all possible perceptions, understandings. Um, and, and that, I believe, is what our consciousness has access to. Um, and I, I would uh, uh, kind of modify your lead into this question by saying I think that any sentient being has the power uh, to uh, explore the, these uh, kind of deeper facets of consciousness that become so apparent to an NDEer, um, if they simply utilize uh, forms of uh, centering prayer and deep meditation, things like that. Mm. Well, that's a way of interfering with the with the monkey mind brain as it normally operates in the three dimensional world. Uh, meditation or um, or the music that. Um, that we'll be getting into in the next show. Um, I discovered in looking for my copy, my autographed copy of proof of heaven that I must have loaned it or given it away to somebody. And, uh, but in the process, I discovered that I had two of the sacred acoustics CDs 
that I had bought at an IONS conference and never listened to. So I'm looking forward to our third our third show so that we can discuss those. But let me get back to another question I had about uh, about uh, the uh, NDE that you had, Eben. Um, you had no out-of-body experience as such, did you? I mean, not floating above the room, seeing seeing your body lying on, in the bed below? I, I never had that, but as I mentioned, at the very end of my journey, um, I did witness six faces that would kind of bubble up out of the muck. They'd mm-hmm. say a few words that I couldn't understand, and then they'd disappear. And those were the kind of veridical time anchors for my experience, because five of those those six faces were physically present in the ICU room the last uh, 24 hours of my coma. And notably, there were many family and friends who had been there earlier in the week who I had no memory of at all. And the fact that all of that recognition happened at the very end of my journey uh, is what, and especially uh, Susan Wrenches, who was not physically there. She was, uh, um, you know, more than 100 miles away, but she was very versed at doing what she called channeling to help people who were in coma uh, to help, help them in their healing. And my family knew her as a personal friend and had asked her to intervene. She was as real to me as anybody else who was physically present. But the important thing is she was even encountering me on the fourth and fifth nights of my coma. So her presence with the other five faces of people who were only there the last 24 hours I was in coma helped me to prove that the vast majority of the coma experience happened deep in the middle of coma between days one and five when that case report shows that my Glasgow coma scale, which in you or me right now would be a 15, in a corpse would be only three, anything below nine is deep coma, and for most of that coma time, as the case report revealed, my Glasgow coma scale was only six or seven. So I was in deep coma most of that time, and that's why those uh, faces that appeared were so important because they helped me to time the overall uh, uh, spiritual journey within that seven days of coma. Here's another question from um, from your experience. You said that um, what you saw on the other side in the in the in the garden on the butterfly was much more real than this world, and and yet uh, people who've had um, say LSD experiences in this world will pick a flower and see it as as if they're looking at the platonic ultimate flower the the most amazing beautiful essence of something that they'd never seen before so is it is it possible that this world has all that reality that you saw on the other side but we're just um numb to it because we've been living here for for our lives well that is certainly part of what a nervous system does is uh, the nervous system is supposed to help protect an animal in the predator prey game uh, you know so they can go out and search for lunch without becoming somebody's lunch um hmm. and that's what the nervous system does is it basically is there to alert you to threats to novel threats and uh it's one of the things about neuroscience that's just fascinating as you can look at how much of the nervous system is is devoted to all this. But remember that a huge part of that is suppressing the stuff that's boring and non-threatening and, and, and non-interesting from a survival viewpoint. So I think the answer to your question is yes, in many ways uh, we become numb to the incredible rich beauty of, of the world we live in. Uh, but the other thing that those, uh, those experiences, uh, certainly with those psychedelic uh, uh, compounds of the serotonin 2A 
uh, drugs like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, etc., is um, they they show us that, that there seems to be more to this world in terms of beings, in terms of kind of spiritual presence, in terms of interrelatedness. Uh, I know one book that influenced me uh, tremendously recently was a book, Diamonds from Heaven, uh, by uh, Dr. Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E. Uh, and it's about his 73 high-dose LSD trips in discerning deep spiritual truths. Now, I do not recommend people to casually use such substances. I think if you have any kind of mental or spiritual imbalance, they can really throw you off the edge of the cliff. But I am fascinated by the scientific research going on now with these substances. And especially, I think one important thing to point out is how the using fMRI and magnetoencephalography in a number of papers from around the world over the last eight years, it's been clearly shown that people under the influence of those drugs have their brain goes dark. There's no part of the brain that increases in activity to explain that that incredible, robust, phenomenal experience that you're describing there. In fact, it's not occur. It's occurring in spite of the brain. The brain is getting out of the way. Uh, and that's something we discuss in great detail in Living in a Mindful Universe is that kind of strange paradox of the phenomenal experiences of those psychedelic drugs uh, not being associated with any increase in brain activity at all. Mm. But in many ways, by getting the brain out of the way, it's allowing our conscious awareness to come much more fully in touch with the universe. Wow. Well, guys, I think we have fully filled up this half hour <laughs> and uh, I'm so pleased with the discussion. I had one last question, but I may save it for our third part, which will be uh, airing the Monday following this. So for our audience, first of all, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear the show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the past shows button. My thanks to Karen and Evan for this wonderful series we're doing, and I hope that everyone will be planning on uh, listening next Monday to part three. So be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>